Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today we speak with well-known airplane crash investigator Captain John Cox about why the circumstances of the crash of a China Eastern Airlines Boeing 737-800 this week raises so many questions for seasoned investigators such as himself. We speak with a woman in Kharkiv in Ukraine who spent the last month documenting the bombardment and destruction of the country's second largest city. She heads out every day braving the danger to show the world the impact on her city and on her neighbours of Russia's ongoing attacks. But first, a new report from the Office of the Parliamentary Budget Officer finds that the federal carbon tax leaves a majority of households out of pockets in the provinces where it applies, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba and Ontario. We speak to the Parliamentary Budget Officer to find out why. Well, it's something that does matter, at least to your bottom line. Let's start tonight by talking about the federal government's carbon tax. Oh, yeah, that's always a controversial one. Or to give it its official name, the Greenhouse Gas Polluting Pricing Act, passed back in 2018. A reminder, it gives the feds the authority to implement a carbon pricing system for provinces that have refused to take part in the pan-Canadian framework. That's Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and Ontario. It was challenged all the way to the Supreme Court, which ruled that it was, in fact, constitutional. So the federal carbon levy is set to rise by $15 a year from $50 per ton in 2022 until it reaches $170 per ton in 2030. Well, what does that mean for you? The environment minister, the federal environment minister, again, this week said on social media that in provinces where that system is in place, again, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario, Eight out of 10 families will get back more than they paid. But there's a new study out from the Office of the Parliamentary Budget Officer that finds that federal carbon pricing will leave a majority of households financially worse off once its impact on the wider economy is added into the equation. That's particularly true for middle and upper middle class households that could pay hundreds, if not thousands more, with costs increasing over time. Now, all political parties like to refer to the PBO's numbers because it is the office of the parliament which provides independent, authoritative, and non-partisan financial and economic analysis. I figured we should find out more about this. So today, I called the office and they said, would you like to speak with Parliamentary Budget Officer Yves Giroux? And I said, well, of course we would. So I welcome him tonight. Yves Giroux, welcome to the show. That's a pleasure. So just so our listeners are clear, this only applies to the four provinces that aren't taking part in the federal government's uh, or, are, or aren't take, don't have their own carbon pricing plan, so are taking part in the government's uh, HEHE climate plan, so to speak. That's it. So this, this applies only to the four provinces that are in the federal backstop regime. That is, provinces that have been deemed by the federal government not to have a sufficient, sufficiently strong carbon emissions program. Right. So Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. Um, So what did you set out to find? So a couple of things. Um, Last year, we, uh, or the year before, it's, it's escaping me now with the pandemic here. So we looked at the impact of the carbon tax and the rebate that the government is providing to uh, individuals in these four backstop provinces, because individuals and households will have to pay the carbon tax uh, directly when they buy fossil fuels. For example, they fill up the gas tank, or they heat, they heat their house, or when they, 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 they need electricity that's generated using fossil fuels, and also indirectly when they buy, uh, I don't know, for example, a bus ticket or something like that. They buy stuff that has um, fossil fuel fuel embedded in the good or the service. So they'll buy things. So they'll have direct and indirect costs uh, of the carbon tax. They'll also receive a rebate. So we looked at that, whether people would be better off net of the rebate or worse off. We did that at a $50 per ton carbon price which was the level that was known at the time we did our report. Distinct from that, last year, we also looked at the economic and the economic impact of a carbon pricing regime, and we found that there would be uh, a loss of efficiency, economic efficiency, compared to a, a scenario where there would be no carbon tax at all. So what we had not done, and we did 
in the report that we tabled on Thursday, on March 24th, we looked at whether there would be a combined impact on households that could be measured. So what is the net impact on households by income quintile of combining the cost of carbon that they have to pay out of pocket, the rebate that they get, but also the economic impact for the broader economy, because right. we're all part of the economy. So, um, for example, investment income could be reduced in certain sectors. Employment income could be slightly lower if you work in certain sectors that will be affected or that are affected by the carbon tax. So that's what we did in the most recent report. I understand that this is probably a, a more comprehensive report than we had seen in the past about the impact of, of the carbon tax on these four provinces, that it was quite widespread. You've taken in a lot of factors. Exactly. And for that reason, it required us to do a lot of legwork in advance. So that's why we started with the net impact of the carbon tax, but only looking at the carbon tax paid and the rebate. And then we went for the macroeconomic impact on the economy. And then once we had done these two very distinct elements, we could try to combine the economic and fiscal or carbon tax impact on households in the four backstop provinces by income quintile. And of course, there's lots of uncertainties around what will happen in 2030. But that's a good a good attempt at painting uh, an accurate picture of the overall impact of the carbon tax for individuals. If you're just joining me, I'm speaking with Parliamentary Budget Officer Yves Giroux. We're talking about a new report tabled by his office yesterday that looks at the impact of the federal carbon tax, the one that is imposed on provinces that do not have carbon tax regimes in place that are satisfactory to the government, and that is Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. The headlines this morning read, of course, uh, Mr. Giroux, that federal carbon pricing leaves a majority of households financially worse off once its impact on the wider economy is added into the equation. Uh, I guess that begs the question, what did you find? Uh, We found that, indeed, the vast majority of uh, households will suffer is a big word, but will be worse off than under a regime where there wouldn't be any carbon tax nor any rebates. Only the uh, individuals or households rather in the bottom quintile will still be better off. And it's mostly because of the fact that the rebate is the same regardless of income, but consumption patterns make it so that generally speaking, Uh, Households in the lower income quintile don't tend to be as carbon intensive as those that are richer, because obviously, if you have more disposable income, you generally tend to have a bigger house or a bigger apartment, you use more carbon uh, or more fossil fuels, you drive longer distances, or you have a bigger vehicle. So it's, it's, uh, um, it's uh, the main reason why those at the bottom end of the income scale tend to be relatively um, better off compared to a regime where there wouldn't be carbon tax nor rebates. But if I understand correctly, for the top 60%, the highest earning households in Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta, they will be worse off under carbon pricing, even with the rebate, than if it didn't exist. Exactly. So they'll be worse off compared to, again, compared to a scenario where there wouldn't be any carbon tax. Uh, That being said, I'm often reminded by many people that this is uh, an argument where you consider that the alternative to a carbon tax is doing nothing. But there are alternatives to a carbon tax. The government could have decided, for example, to implement greenhouse gas emissions reduction through regulation. And regulation also has costs. The cost of regulating emissions is less visible, but it also entails costs. For example, if the government was to determine that nobody shall uh, heat their house uh, with uh, natural gas from now on or from a certain date on, that would also have costs. It just wouldn't be as explicit as a carbon tax, but it could lead to even bigger inefficiencies by forcing changes in behavior that's not the most efficient. So, Yes, it's true that a carbon tax has a cost, but the alternatives, which we have not looked at, because that's not the world in which we are, the government having decided to go the carbon tax route, other other ways of reducing greenhouse gas emissions would also have costs. 
and probably higher costs if you look at the literature and examples of other countries. It's just right. that they wouldn't be as visible. So in this case, just so listeners understand, what you are able to look into is things that are in fact enacted, not things, not the other possibilities that aren't. So you you look at what's done, not what might have been done otherwise. Exactly. Right. I'm speaking with Parliamentary Budget Officer Yves Giroux from Ottawa. Uh, now we're talking about a report just done by his office looking at the impact of the carbon tax imposed by the federal government on the provinces of Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta, and its impact on people there. And it found that uh, 60% of households, the those in the higher uh, tax bracket, so to speak, or income uh, percentiles would be, in fact, hurt by it, would be spending more than they're getting back. Uh, and the lower percentiles would be, in fact, getting a little bit, be in slightly better shape. When we get back, we'll talk a bit about how that jives with what's been said by politicians on this matter. We'll be back. I'm back with Parliamentary Budget Officer Yves Giroux. We're talking about a report from his office released yesterday looking at the implications or at least the financial costs of the carbon tax imposed by the federal government on provinces that do not have what is considered to be by Ottawa a sufficient carbon tax program or one at all, Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan and Alberta. And it found uh, that 60%, the highest earning 60% of households in those provinces would be worse off under carbon pricing than if a policy did not exist, while the bottom 40% are somewhat better off in the current fiscal year, at least. Uh, we've obviously heard, and we've repeated this many, many times that uh, from the government, that 80% of households will receive more in offsetting payments than they pay in carbon costs. And I'm wondering how your report jives with that claim. Well, that's a claim that is accurate to the extent that you only look at how much carbon tax households pay compared to what they receive in rebates. So it's true across most jurisdictions in the federal backstop regime that about 80% of households will be better off if you just consider carbon tax paid directly and indirectly minus the rebate. So accurate, but not complete. A more complete picture would also look at the economic impact for the broad economy, but also what that means and how it translates into impacts for specific households. And that's that's what we did in the report. It's not perfect and it's not a very precise uh, picture because it's uh, uh, an average for households across quintiles. So it's a, a broad a broad tranche, even if for a quintile, it's 20% of the population, but it gives a pretty good idea as to what the impacts will be for households. So what when the government says 80% will be better off, true if you look at it from a certain angle, but incomplete. Yeah, tell me a bit, how does, the, just, just so listeners are clear, how does this complete that picture, or at least how does it lay claim to that claim being incomplete? Um, it's um, It's incomplete when you forget the economic impact because um, workers, for example, in certain sectors will not be benefiting from the same potentially um, job number of jobs that could be increased in the absence of a carbon pricing regime. For example, the oil and gas sector will likely be negatively affected compared to a scenario where there wouldn't be any carbon pricing regime. Uh, so um, salaries are likely to be growing at a lower pace in these sectors that are more affected, again, compared to a scenario where there wouldn't be any carbon pricing regime. The, transport sorry, the transportation sector also relies to a large extent on fossil fuel. So if the price uh, uh, per ton of carbon emitted goes to $170 per ton, it's likely that these sectors will see cost pressures which will prevent them from uh, passing on higher wage increases to, to their workers. Uh, in a similar manner, um, for uh, investment income, uh, it's likely to be slightly lower than it would otherwise be in the absence of a carbon tax, because we find that, generally speaking, in Canada at least, Capital-intensive industries also tend to be um, those that rely on fossil fuels more than than those that don't. So, um, so there's a direct correlation between a, an increase in carbon pricing and the uh, the returns that one can expect from investment income. So that's for the period between now and 2030, 31. 
Of course, some people will say, well, you don't take into consideration the benefits of potentially moving away from uh, fossil fuels. And, and that's true because between now and 2030, 2031, we don't see that there is a strong potential for um, breakthrough technologies to have significant potential benefits because it takes time to develop and implement such technologies. However, it's quite possible that these breakthroughs happen, uh, but we don't know the pace at which they would be implemented and whether they'd be Canadian or, or imported. And if these technological advancements are imported, for example, imported technologies and imported ways of doing, the benefits would not accrue as much to Canadians as they would otherwise do. And it's quite possible that beyond 2030, there'll be more benefits, but that's uh, beyond the time horizon uh, at which we looked. I have about 90 seconds to two minutes left. I want to ask you very quickly, you did look at what this might do to government coffers in general too, and you found that it might uh, might have a a negative effect on budgetary balance as well. Indeed. People often think that um, the carbon tax is uh, a big revenue stream for the government. And in fact, it is, but it's not a net revenue because of the commitment the government has made to return the, most of the proceeds from the carbon tax to individuals through the, um, the incentive rebate. So uh, on a net basis, the carbon tax is not providing that much in net revenue. So it's revenues minus the rebate on a net basis doesn't have a big impact on the government's balance sheet. But what we found is that the reduction in investment income and economic growth and employment income, that will lower proceeds from uh, personal income tax revenues, again, compared to a a regime where there wouldn't be any uh, carbon tax. So it's likely to have a negative impact of about $5 billion on the federal deficit by 2030-31. So not insignificant impact, negative impact on federal revenues compared to a scenario where there wouldn't be any tax on carbon. Well, let's go to China now, where it's nearly noon on Saturday and investigators continue to search for clues following the crash of that China Eastern Airlines Boeing 737-800 earlier this week. 132 passengers and crew died when the plane appeared to suddenly nosedive and plummet to the ground, reaching an estimated 966 kilometers an hour before crashing. The plane had been flying normally for just over an hour on Monday when it took that nosedive, falling 21,000 feet in just a little over a minute, then it briefly stopped, gained altitude, then plummeted again. So it's been a real mystery for people who follow this stuff very closely. There was no mayday call, no sign anything was wrong. An air traffic controller tried to contact the pilot several times, got no reply, officials have said. They have found both black boxes, but the investigation has been difficult. It's hard to reach. It's remote. It's been raining. And again, it's a crash that leaves a lot of questions for seasoned investigators. One of them joins me now. Captain John Cox is a former pilot and chief executive officer of Safety Operating Systems. He's been involved in several National Transportation Safety Board crash investigations. And you may recognize the name and voice from series such as Why Airplanes Crash. John Cox, Captain John Cox, welcome to the show. My pleasure. Good to be here. Thanks for the invitation. I guess just your first impressions of this particular incident, because there has been there have been images out there of of what looks like um, an aircraft and just plummeting to the ground and not out of control, but just a sheer drop. And that I think even for people who do not know much about this or do not investigate these uh, incidents seems like something out of the ordinary. This is very out of the ordinary. Uh, the the profile of this, of the accident flight is very, very unusual. It's actually quite difficult to get the airplane to do this. So that will narrow the field down for the investigators aerodynamically. There's only certain ways you can get it to do this. So um, everything's on the table. Uh, Thankfully they have one and I hear report now they have the second recorder. Um, Those recorders tell the story. You, you mentioned there were just a few ways that this could have happened um, and that it was aerodynamically difficult to get a plane to how, in what circumstances would an aircraft be able to descend at that rate in that position? One, if there was a, uh, a pilot instrumentation and if the pilots incorrectly followed 
that erroneous data. They're trained not to do that, and there are safeguards and redundant systems. Have been cases such as the Adam Air flight uh, that resulted in a, an extraordinary descent because the pilots were following bad information uh, displayed on their flight uh, instruments. So that's one. Two, if the uh, the small wings in the back of the airplane cause sta- a stabilizer, horizontal stabilizers, if they get massively put out of position. Uh, and command nose down, the autopilot fights it to a point, then releases and the airplane can go down uh, that way. And, and then thirdly, there's the, you know, obviously there's the possibility of it being a deliberate act. We don't have any indication one way or the other on that. So, um, but there have been other accidents that had very high descent rates as a result of uh, a deliberate act. So I think certainly the investigators at this point, have everything on the table. They've not gotten enough evidence yet to withdraw any one item, be it the weather, be it mechanical, be anything with that. Um, Everything's still on the table. So uh, I think that those, historically, those are three possible ways to get the level of the rate of descent that we see uh, in this airplane. So either something like an incorrect incorrect instrumentation readings, like you mentioned with Adam Air, a stabilizer issue. I think Alaska Airways uh, that crash was a stabilizer issue back in right. back in the day, and and again in, intentional. And I, I noticed that yesterday was the seven year anniversary of the German Wings crash outside of Nice, uh, which was found to have been intentional as well. So I, but many no hypotheses is uh, off the table now. I understand exactly um, how difficult. Is it to investigate a crash that happens at that rate of speed uh, in an area as remote as where it happened? It complicates things dramatically. Uh, just getting the investigators to the site, um, doing the initial uh, photographic documentation of the site, and then starting to pick up the pieces looking for uh, the evidence, for example, uh, if you, you know, first you want to find the engines, you want to find the front of the engines and then the rotational damage uh, in those, in what's known as the fan section, the, the large uh, group of compressor blades at the front of the engine. Were they at high power or low power? The way that they are bent uh, can be a good indication of that. Is there evidence of fire? Uh, an in-flight fire leaves soot and soot will remain on a component uh, pretty much regardless of impact speed. So is there soot in areas that are unexpected? So it's, it's a very slow methodical process of, um, of eliminating things until the point that you have uh, a, a few items or few uh, hypotheses that could explain everything and are consistent with the evidence, and then you begin to develop those. So that's one of the reasons it takes as long as it does. Yeah, the Sherlock Holmes theory, right? You, you eliminate the impossible, and then what's left is is the probable, or the, right. the maybe. Um, when you look at the fact that, that the plane stabilized briefly before continuing its descent, does that tell you anything? It, it's actually one of the larger questions that I have. Um, and I have some question about, is have we validated the data that has been transmitted from the airplane as being good data? Right. And we don't know yet. So if the, uh, the system that is uh, creating that data for transmission to air traffic control, if it were compromised in some way or erroneous in some way, then all of the assumptions we're making right now may not be representative of the actual flight path of the airplane. That will be corroborated with the, uh, the flight data recorder. But the the way that you get you get this airplane into these conditions it's it's really quite difficult so we have to literally take it apart as you say um eliminating one thing at a time and uh, consequently it it takes a lot of time and it it's it's a frustrating process but it is a proven process the um you know, China Eastern Airlines, as we discussed, is 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 a is a good has a good safety record. The seven thirty seven eight hundred has a good safety record. Uh, I imagine both pilot training and the aircraft itself will be 
will be focuses of this investigation? Oh, certainly. The um, I've flown the seven three seven eight hundred. It's a it's a very good air, airplane. It's a proven airplane. There's about seven thousand of them, I think, in service. It's I think the most widely sold model of all the seven three seven models, which goes back to nineteen sixty seven. Uh, the airframe uh, is a proven airframe. It's got a very good safety record. Uh, China Eastern is a, a high quality airline. They have uh, they're very fastidious in their maintenance. They're highly regarded in uh, the world aviation market. So uh, this would be at at this point uh, the investigators are looking at an airline who knows how to operate these type of airplanes and do it effectively and safely. I'm speaking with Captain John Cox, former pilot and chief executive officer of Safety Operating Systems. He's been involved in several National Transportation Safety Board crash investigations. We're talking about the crash this week of a China Eastern Airlines Boeing 737-800 in the province of Guangxi in China, uh, in rural China, and the investigation that continues. When we come back, just a bit more about the challenges that individual investigators face. Uh, We'll get to that after this. And I'm back with Captain John Cox, former pilot and chief executive officer of Safety Operating Systems. We're talking about the crash of a China Eastern Airlines Boeing 737-800 earlier this week in rural China, in the province of Guangxi, a plane that seemed to quite literally nosedive right out of the sky and into the ground. And, And it's raised a lot of questions about what could have happened. We've been talking about some of the investigative routes. I, I was looking back at some of the investigations you've carried out, uh, Captain Cox, and certainly the U.S. Air 427 crash outside of Pittsburgh in 1994 was another plane that we understand for probably for very different reasons, w- went at high speed into the ground. Uh, and, and it must complicate in some ways. I mean, we don't know yet in this case if the black boxes are damaged and beyond repair or not, but they're clearly built the black boxes to withstand even this kind of a crash, I understand. They are. They're extremely tough. They're built. Uh, we, we have enough information from previous accidents to have a pretty good idea what the forces on a recorder could be. And uh, the recorder manufacturers have be- got quite good at uh, armoring the, the devices so that they can withstand fire. They can withstand immersion in salt water or fresh water. They can withstand these very high G loads or impact forces uh, in an accident like this. I remember uh, listening to you talk about that particular investigation and saying how difficult it was because of the of the, the tragedy of it. Of course, to remember that that the job of the investigator is not to save the lives of those who may have already perished, but to try and make sure you find out what were, what happened so you can save lives in the future. That it's one of the hardest parts about being an accident investigator is. You have to keep the, the mental focus on what caused it. There's nothing you can do for those people that have been fatally injured in the accident. And as traumatic as it is for the families, the airline, the friends, um, uh, it's, you can't help those people. And the, the only thing you can do to help them and for uh, everyone that will be on airplanes in the future is to prevent a reoccurrence. And to do that, you have to understand what caused it and and to a high level of certainty and that's how you you determine was it a uh, an airplane issue was it an air traffic control issue was it a pilot issue or as we typically find out a combination of uh, of multiple factors and then that is how we we've moved aviation from being a daredevil means of transportation in the 20s and 30s up to the to now today being the safest form of transportation ever designed by mankind yeah i imagine the pressure uh, and i understand just from watching news reports out of china just how much pressure there is on investigators in this case the president's been involved how much pressure there is on these investigators to find something quickly what is it like to deal with that? I understand with U.S. Air 2, the world was watching. This was a 737, right? One of the most, pop- the most popular plane in the air at that point. There must be an awful lot of pressure when you're, when you're investigating these sorts of crashes because of the sheer implications of the findings. There is a tremendous amount of pressure. I mean, you're asked multiple times today, do you know what caused it? Do you know what caused it? And what you have to answer is we have 
possibilities. We are, do not have an answer yet. We'll let you know when we do, but it's more important to get the right answer than a fast answer. And that typically will satisfy most people most of the time. Uh, there are some that, that keep demanding um, that answers that we don't have yet. And uh, unfortunately, recently, then the conspiracy theorists then run amok saying that there's cover-up going. And, and my experience is there are no cover-ups in these uh, sort of investigations. Uh, and there's a, a strong push by all the parties to find out what happened. Do you have confidence in this case? I mean, I know the NTSB has been called in, according to the transport minister in the States, or the transportation secretary, rather. Um, is there any concern here about what kind of collaboration might be possible between Chinese authorities and the NTSB and Boeing? At, early on, the Chinese authorities said that the investigation would be conducted in accordance with the International Civil Aviation uh, Organization Treaty, which is known as Annex 13. And that is a worldwide standard for accident investigation. And on very early, in the first hours after the accident, the Chinese authorities, the CAAC, said that they would conduct the investigation in accordance with Annex 13. That gives me great hope and great confidence um, that this will be an open, transparent, and factually accurate investigation. I was thinking, looking back at, at anniversaries this month. This is the eight-year anniversary of the disappearance of MH370, the Malaysian Airlines plane that would left Beijing and was never seen again. Does that one still puzzle you? It puzzles it, everyone, I guess. But it, it, it definitely puzzles me. It's, it's one of aviation's greatest mysteries, and aviation does not do well with mysteries. So it's, um, it's incomplete, and there's there's discussion about another search, and I'm hopeful that uh, that will be conducted. But we need to find an answer to it. Um, it, as I have said on more than one occasion, the last time we had a mystery of this magnitude that was in any way similar, the captain's name was Amelia Earhart. That is indeed, indeed, and I guess the importance is is knowing what happened in each case to make sure it doesn't happen again. So regardless of what happened, and there's, there are many conspiracy theories about that Malaysian Airlines flight, uh, but knowing the truth would at least allow us to prevent it from happening again. Absolutely. The, the Boeing 777 has one of the base, best safety records in history. Uh, and, you know, Malaysian Airlines, they have operated that airplane very successfully for many, many, many years. So what, what occurred on that accident flight Right now is all still speculation. You can, you can line up what limited bits of evidence we have and draw some conclusions, but the lack of evidence uh, keeps that, that accident uh, a mystery. Given all that you know and all your experience, you confident we'll know what happened to the, Eastern, to the China Eastern Airlines plane? Oh, I think we'll know what happened to China Eastern. There's, there's too much focus on it. Um, they have a large number of 737-800s operating in China. So there's a strong financial incentive to ensure that the fleet is safe, which history says that it is, and that uh, people getting on uh, a, a China Eastern 737-800 have confidence, as they should. So there's a strong uh, incentive to determine as quickly and as accurately as possible what happened in this tragedy. Captain John Cox, I appreciate your time and your insight tonight. Thank you so much for speaking with me. My pleasure. Let's head to Ukraine now, where authorities say they believe about 300 people were killed in that Russian airstrike last week on that theater in Mariupol where people were sheltering from the attacks. It would make it the deadliest attack on civilians yet in this war. And the bloodshed in that city is fueling allegations that Moscow has committed war crimes by killing civilians whether deliberately or by indiscriminate fire. Another constant target for Russia has been Ukrainian's second largest city, Kharkiv, just 40 kilometers from the Russian border. The population was about 1.5 million before the war. It's much less than that now. Hundreds of thousands have fled as Russia's targeted the very places where locals live, work, shop, play. 
The city's downtown has been completely scarred by war, demolished by airstrikes and cruise missiles. Still, every single day, Maria Avdieva leaves her home and heads out to document the destruction on her phone and do report. She's essentially become a correspondent in her hometown trying to show the world what's going on. It's an act of defiance as well as an act of documentation. Here's what she has to say. Hi there, this is Maria Avdieva from Kharkiv, Ukraine, and I am today in a very symbolic place, heart of Kharkiv, Kharkiv city center. And behind myself, you see the monument, which is called Flying Independence, with Ukrainian flag on it. Every day she does that, despite the shelling, despite the danger, every day she walks out and does that. We wanted to know more. So we asked her to talk to us. Maria Avdieva joins me now from Kharkiv. Thanks so much for being here tonight. Thank you. It's my pleasure as always. You know, it's, I was looking back, it's been more than a month now that you've been documenting what's been happening in Kharkiv. And I was wondering, as you look back at your videos, what you've seen change, how much the city has changed uh, and, and how it feels to walk through the city now. Well, it's not getting better. Uh, it, on the contrary, uh, the situation worsens. And uh, I'm now working not alone, but with a, with a team. So it, it, we, it's uh, four of us uh, that uh, go uh, out and uh, to document Russian war crimes. And that means that I can see more now because before that I was uh, uh, also working uh, that, that means that I was able to get to the places you know, where I could actually in the walking distance. But now sure. I have a possibility to go around the city. That means I see more destruction, more people suffering and more places of the shelling. And uh, Russia intensified shelling uh, for the, the previous, the next, uh, sorry, Russia intensified shelling uh, throughout the, the previous several days and uh, that means it doesn't stop almost never and uh, it's uh, especially active in the morning but then also in the night during the night and then uh, people in the morning will go out and see what what else has happened and this is uh, you do not feel safe outside because uh, recently there were some very dramatic uh, moments when people were staying in queues uh, in front of the centers uh, distributing humanitarian aid, and they were attacked just right there. So the line of people staying uh, in front of the the center of with humanitarian aid, and I was at this place yesterday seeing uh, the uh, the results of of this attack, and six people were killed just on the spot. So of right. course it's hard to see, and it, it's hard to to grasp to understand that Russia is now deliberately targeting civilians when they are outside, when they are most vulnerable to get, trying to get food or humanitarian aid or hiding somewhere. So this is, the situation is difficult in, in this sense. Yeah, I, I saw the the images that you posted, or at least you you posted something about uh, on on social media about the attack on that on that line of people waiting for food. Have you witnessed? I mean, this has been this we saw this happening in Mariupol. This idea of laying a city under siege and then preventing people from from even being able to get food and water and the things that they need. I mean, this is clearly something you could never have imagined this happening in your city. Absolutely, yes. It's something unimaginable that is happening. The situation is different from Mariupol. Kharkiv is much more larger. It is the, the second largest city in Ukraine. And though many people have left, there are still many inside the city. And Russia didn't manage to get it encircled. The Russian troops are still only on the north and northeast of Kharkiv, and they do not advance. They cannot do any progress uh, on the uh, on the ground because they are uh, effectively fought back with the Ukrainian military troops. But that means that Russia is now more and more terrorizing civilian population by uh, using uh, more shelling. Uh, more bombardments, uh, more uh, ballistic rocket strikes. Yesterday there was a strike from the Black Sea. Imagine where it wow. is it, and then yeah. from the Black Sea to Kharkiv to one of the buildings in the uh, Kharkiv city center by the ballistic missile. 
So uh, that means that Russia is targeting now and the city from the sky, not not advancing on, on the underground operation. And that means that for civilians, the situation is getting more and more dangerous. I was going to say, it's been a mo- more than a month now. It must be very difficult for you even... I know how committed you are to documenting what's happening, but it must be difficult for you to get through every day when you don't probably don't sleep properly. You're probably not eating properly. Uh, after a while, it, it's, it really does start to take its toll. Do you, how do you find the strength to go out every day? Yes, it's, uh, it's difficult. And uh, I, sometimes I do feel exhausted because of the uh, sleep deprivation. I usually sleep four or five hours a day the last month. But then, um, well, I, I speak a, a lot with military, uh, and they, these are people on the front line who are all this time sleeping, you know, somewhere in, in the fields with their weapons and sleep, having possibility to sleep one, two hours uh, between the shellings. And uh, well, then I understand that I am in much more better situation than they are. And there is no time to complain uh, for myself. And uh, I try to get as much rest or as possible because then I understand that uh, by doing this, I can work more so I can actually um, help more and uh, be more effective. Uh, But uh, of course, uh, there there are more people out there, uh, Ukrainian military, territorial defense who are doing uh, just um, um, for heroes, real heroes of this war, and uh, well, who are every minute uh, in this uh, poss- poss- possible uh, possibility of uh, being killed by another uh, rocket or strike. So uh, I think that I have to do what is possible and work as hard as I only can to help in in this information battlefield. You did. Um, you have been chronicling the way that people in your city are living these days. One of the most interesting ones, of course, and there are many of the reports that you've done, these these things that you do each day when you walk out or when now when you drive out. Uh, one of them was the subway system, which I gather had been built originally in a way to protect the population from a U.S. nuclear attack, but is now being used by people in Kharkiv to protect them from Russian bombs. Yes, exactly. I have uh, had some chances to go to the uh, to the underground and speak to people, and today was there as well. So they are they are living there for more than a month now, uh, because either they don't have a possibility to go home because there is no home left because everything was destroyed, or they don't have any heat and electricity and water, or they sometimes are afraid because I have met the girl with the baby boy that is uh, living uh, in the uh, in the underground for these four weeks she says that uh, she's afraid for her baby to go home and that's why she's staying there so uh, i haven't i have never thought that you no know, this this uh, uh, metro stations that were in fact built uh, with having in mind bearing in mind that the nuclear war would happen and they will be used to protect people from a nuclear strike will now be used uh, by Ukrainians uh, to hide from Russian strikes. And Russia is uh, very close to, to, to Kharkiv. It's only 40 kilometers away. And uh, Kharkiv is Russian-speaking city. So actually, these are the, our neighbors speaking the same language as we do came here to, to kill us. This is something that it, you cannot unthinkable unbelievable and it is happening here and that is what most people say but also they do say everyone says here that we will win that is just general feeling outside and maria you do have one of those flags i think behind you you didn't have it last time we spoke yeah. I, I know listeners can't see us but i can see maria and she has a yeah, Ukrainian yeah. flag behind her now made by those same yes, that, that's volunteers. It, yes. <laughs> yeah um why don't we come back and we'll talk a bit more about uh, maria did a very I would call it optimistic video today, um, just about a symbol in the town square of Kharkiv or the city square, one of the more important symbols, flying freedom, and why there is still cause for optimism amid so much destruction over the last month. We'll be back with that. 
I'm speaking with Maria Avdieva, who is in Kharkiv. She spent the last month documenting uh, every day, sets out with uh, with her camera. She used to do it on her own on foot. She now does it with the help of a small team where they get to see more of what's happened to this very large city, Ukraine's second largest city, a population before the invasion of 1.5 million, uh, and has documented the destruction and and what people are going through since the beginning of this for over a month now and really has created almost it's almost like a, a chronicle now of what's happened to Kharkiv and the people of the city. Maria, how do you choose where to go each day? Uh, it's, it's usually uh, very uh, comes up in the morning uh, because I start my uh, every morning from looking into the lo- local uh, publics, local social media groups, trying to get uh, understanding on what was happened during the night because it is completely dark in the night and you can only hear the, this, the sounds of shelling somewhere and the sounds of explosions that you do not actually understand where is it happening. So then I will go to these groups to understand in, in w- w- what place uh, was targeted and uh, what has happened and then uh, decide based on that. Uh, or probably uh, it will be just, uh, I will feel that uh, today I... I well, I would like to, to speak more about our unity, our uh, feeling of Ukrainians united, uh, how we want to win. And that, that's, that day I will probably go to some place where, with, where symbolic, which is symbolic for Kharkiv. I today posted that uh, video you, you, to, you, told, you talked about, but then I also was to another place, didn't put it on Twitter yet. Uh, so this is the monument of Taras Shevchenko, the, right. uh, well, oh. the prominent uh, Ukrainian poet. And the, this, his uh, monument is in the Central Park, which is a very symbolic place. And he was also, the statue, the, the monument was fortified with the sandbags and uh, this is something unbelievable. You know, this huge monument all encircled, all you know, covered with sandbags to protect the monument from the possible attack. And I understand that, you know, there are also other needs in the city, but people do want to protect the monument, the symbol, uh, the symbolical place. And uh, when while I was there, a woman with her two children came from a nearby house and she asked people working uh, there, like putting the sand around the monument, if they could help them to do that because they want to protect well, uh, protect it. So you're still, I mean, clearly you're still seeing a lot of unity within the city too. There was one thing you posted this week that was very, that was heartbreaking, honestly, was a story about Sir, Sergei Ivanchuk, who was a, a volunteer from Kharkiv, and he'd been in Italy studying to be an opera singer, and he'd been shot, and he was singing in your video. And I, it, it was amazing to see that, that spirit still alive, I think. Uh, how touching or how emotional was that for you to, to meet Sergei? Yeah, that was really emotional. And also his mom was there and speaking to her. Uh, also, she, she burst into tears. And uh, well, while Sergei was telling me how he got wounded because he was bringing humanitarian aid to people. And that is what is most important now under this constant challenge. It is very difficult to bring uh, help to people because you while you are driving and that is what's happened what happened to him while you are driving in a car you become a target for uh, for a strike or for a, uh, so you can be uh, and uh, he was shot in, in, in different so in, uh, multiple times and his lung uh, was wounded and that is why he was worried if he would be able to sing again because he also he was volunteering, bringing humanitarian aid, but another part of it is he was singing before the war to collect money for uh, for Ukrainian military, and he wanted to return back after the war to his singing. And the, well, and, and at the end, he told me that uh, he wants to get well soon to get back and help people. That was, that was what I was going to ask you. You described a situation of how dangerous it is to drive around, to walk around, to be outside, but you do that every day. And I'm wondering how much longer do you think you're going to do it for? 
Well, uh, it, it is it is it is getting more dangerous uh, because, uh, as I told you, the shell and go is uh, well intensified, and you never know where it will happen next. That is the most dangerous part. So it's not like you will be warned that that is coming. It will just happen out of nowhere. So um, yes, it 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 is it is risky. But then uh, I also understand that it is important. So I try to find this balance between you know um, not making uh, unnecessary risk and then being able to tell the story of the city which is uh, going through this uh, through this war because what i see on the street this is really some historical monuments which i want to you know other people to see because uh, i haven't I, i didn't even imagine this happening and i have now the possibility to witness that And that's why I want to share what I see. But you've managed to stay optimistic. I saw that in your video today about about the flying freedom. Uh, obviously, we'll see it in a video later with, with the statue of Taras Shevchenko, uh, Ukraine's national poet. Um, you're staying optimistic, and, and that must that must help. Yeah, absolutely. That's well, that's what my spirit is about because I speak to so many people who are on the front line who are you know, combating every day with this aggression and all of them are optimistic. No, no one you know, is uh, complaining. They all just want, uh, they understand that we must work together to, to make this victory uh, sooner, uh, so to make Ukraine win sooner. And that is uh, what I am determined to do as well. So, uh, uh, and we see that the morale uh, in Ukrainian troops, in Ukrainian military is so high. We see People, you know, singing uh, uh, Ukrainian anthem in, in for those who are there for uh, four weeks now, and the people, uh, ch- children, uh, drawing uh, the, uh, dr- the making drawings for for soldiers on the forefront, and uh, generally speaking to the children is uh, something well that is so heartbreaking and at the same time you understand that you have to do everything to protect these children because what they tell you this is uh this is something that shouldn't be happening and uh, i think i feel very determined to do anything i can to stop this as soon as possible maria abdieva as always thank you thank you ben it was my pleasure